Hey there, readers of Undefended, Undefeated. This is um, the audio version of A Classroom is for Readiness, about scaffolding pluralism in the 2020s. It's a boring truism that the headlines are a distortion machine. I'm guessing that readers here find themselves mostly unrecognized by the mainstream news outlets that are stoked by social media click chasing. I bet, like me, you all are a mix of left or right, fast or slow, protest or cooperation, institutions or grassroots axes, that you fall on various points on those axes as a spectrum when it comes to the big political issues in a whole mix, and that in that mix lies also um, the state of campus culture, sort of capital C campus culture. I'm betting that we share a mix of both concern and skepticism about diagnosing the contemporary education zeitgeist, and that some of you, like me, are wondering how to cut past the algorithmic noise on the internet and to lightly shore up the project of teaching and learning. So to that end, I've got a plan for week one in both of my new classes at Olin College this fall, and I'm curious what you think about it. On any given weekday morning in a semester with a very specific group of students and professor who agree to meet and knock around a bunch of ideas together, things are generally not unfolding as dramatically as the sensational news stories uh, about the embattled classroom would have you believe. And I say this from my posts at four different lefty East Coast American institutions in the last decade. It's, It's just not that adversarial in the main. And yet, there is a conflation of language with harm, especially even physical harm, that is afoot and it's a new idea to grapple with together. It's similarly not the case that students are commandeering the classroom with a set of approved or canceled topics. And yet there is a kind of easy and expected ritual in the way that students see texts or media of some kind if it's left unchallenged. They see those texts often as ham-fisted negotiations of power and little else. It's not the case, similarly, that politically conservative views are verboten on campus, but there is a tacit, unspoken, progressive orthodoxy that's just unexplored at the foundations. It just tends not to come up, those kind of first principles questions. So it's a delicate time. And I, yes, I am a little bit worried. I'm worried with caveats. But above all, what I know is that, that this is the case, that there is a deep hunger among young people for difficult ideas and for the big reasons why those ideas are important and for the skills to hold complexity aloft in their minds, to hold it unresolved and even sometimes unresolvable. So some of you read my piece about the design of time and um, more about the zone of proximal development. So I want to just invoke that graphic again. So it's a series of three concentric circles in the middle of which is what I can do. That's um, Lev Vygotsky's uh, term for the zone of achieved development, what the learner, where the learner is right now in any given situation. 
And then the ring just outside of that is what I can do with help, what a learner can do with help. And that is what Vygotsky called the zone of proximal development or the ZPD, what needs to be done to take the, the learner where he needs where he needs to be. So that's that kind of bridging zone. And then on the out, outer ring is the what I can't do. And Vygotsky was sort of saying, you can't jump from what I can do to what I can't do without this very scaffolded and structured help zone of what I can do with help. That is the zone of proximal development. So the biggest mistake I think that teachers make is trying to take students from what they can do already to what they can't do in a kind of leapfrog style. So hopping from the one to the other with the trust that throwing folks in the deep end will always just magically by semester's end deliver the goods. And sometimes that does work, but, and you should trust me because I've learned this the hard way repeatedly, without the slow walk structures that bridge from can't to can, um, or from what you already can to what you can't, depending on how you see it, you'll be losing a lot of people along the way. You need that scaffolding. And the zone of proximal development is that space where I think intentional teaching lies. So it's choosing to model explicitly in behavior and practice what you're hoping students will learn, making the how of any domain kind of knowledge into part of the formal curriculum, not just the what, and assessing process alongside outcomes at the end. And okay, so let's say this is all basically well and good for domain-based coursework. So for teaching fundamentals in history, fundamentals in engineering, psychology, anthropology, something else. But it's less obvious how you create a general culture of open-handed pluralism and healthy contestation all around. So just like an ethos or a commitment and even just a kind of vibe that's running through any classroom. So my question is, how do you map the zone, the zone of proximal development for an amorphous kind of polarized mood on campus? And that is, that is the case, I think, in a lot of institutions like mine. How do you map the zone for the subtle creep of flattened political discussion, a kind of intellectual foreclosure that we might observe, and just an all-around timidity in the face of hard questions, given social media, call-out culture, these kinds of phenomena? So when generations shift, as they have now in the space of my quarter century teaching, when the zeitgeist changes, you can you have choices. I mean, you can be frustrated that students no longer come with the same green zone of can, unaided, maybe the same can uh, that you had. You can rant uh, about how they've been raised. You can diagnose the cultural norms and where they come from. You can blame students, administrators, you know, kind of higher education at large. And then what to do about it. You can retrench to your established classroom norms, just unexplained. Or I think you can shift the zone one orbit back. So like another, adding another um, concentric circle in your mind's eye and scaffold to the place where you're headed. You can name and explain what the gathering of the classroom is for in the first place, in general, and then walk students through the paces, Socratic style, kind of dialogue style to arrive at what it takes to embody that purpose. And for me, that purpose of education is most elegantly expressed in the philosopher Danielle Allen's idea of education as participatory readiness, she calls it, which is a form of civic agency. 
And in the written uh, newsletter, I've got a link to an, uh, a piece of Alan's called What is Education For? And it's in the Boston Review. I recommend it to you. So I'll be reading this piece of Daniel Allen's with students in both my classes between week one and week two. And when we convene in week two, we'll talk about readiness as a paradigm for our provisional classroom community. So I'll be asking students, what do you need to be ready for? And how would you know you're ready? Ready with a lot of resilience around the edges, ready for ideas and decisions you've maybe rehearsed in class in our semester together, but of course, that's preparation and readiness for ideas and questions that will be new to you in some 10, 20, 30 years time beyond your time in college. At my institution, like so many others, we often emphasize what Alan calls professional readiness. Sometimes that's a kind of return on investment for the expense of college, which does have to be justified. Sometimes professional readiness is appealed to, you know, from an earnest distributive logic for learning. So Alan says that more access to educational goods in preparation for the professions is celebrated for its democratizing effect. So in more fairly distributing cultural and economic capital via education, you get more economic equality. And of course, professional readiness is good and necessary and important. But, this is a quote, political choices determine the rules that shape distributive patterns. That's what Alan writes. So she says, quote, it, takes it makes sense to focus first on political, not economic, equality. And if we choose political equality as our orienting ideal, that is, empowering all to participate capably in the life of a polity, a different view of education's purpose content and consequence comes into view. So Alan goes on to name and define three practices of participatory readiness that prepare students for the civic agency that she sees at the heart of political equality. One is what she calls disinterested deliberation. It's kind of the town hall form of um, deliberating together. Two is an idea of fair fighting or kind of strong modes of protest. And three, in this idea of prophetic reframing or frame shifting in the field of rhetoric, a kind of recasting of an issue that's been taken for granted and the persuasive argumentation around it. So you can read Alan's whole piece for a really beautiful, succinct definitions of each of these modes and the call for ordinary people to recognize and choose among them and shift between and recombine them in the, the act of civic agency. So the classroom is an ideal setting for practicing each of these in a mix of capacities that Alan says includes, right, the kinds of things you want students to be able to do. So, quote, social diagnosis, ethical reasoning, cause and effect analysis, and persuasive argumentation. So my students and I will talk about readiness, about especially our task of disinterested deliberation and about what that kind of skill requires. So, you know, open inquiry, curiosity, a commitment to disentangling people from their ideas and so much more related to that. But the scaffolding for the why, why we do it, it needs to be iterated. 
for the first time, perhaps, and not just cursorily and cryptically reiterated or sort of gestured to. I've made this mistake in the past, you know, about what what deliberation is for, because it's not a generational assumption, not in the 2020s. So readiness needs a kind of championing, and I think students will get it when they think it through in the zone of proximal development, taking on and agreeing to their own readiness as a kind of training that's necessary and uncomfortable. We'll also read uh, Wendy Brown's recent interview in the New York Times um, with specific attention to one of the questions in which she addresses um, different containers on college campuses. So the rooms and settings that make different kinds of engagements possible. And this is a very, in a way, simple and obvious, but I think necessary idea, again, to iterate that you do, yes, bring your whole self to college, as we say often now. And colleges are more and more set up to honor all those different facets of self in spaces and groups and, you know, kind of forms of support that are far outside just the academic. But following that very reason, right, the, 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 the growth and the, the emergence of those kinds of supports, it follows that the classroom is merely one container. And it's actually not designed to be all things to all students at all times. So here's what Brown says in, in one of those answers. This is, quote, campuses are complicated spaces because they aren't just one kind of space. There's the classroom, the dorm the public space that is the kind of campus. Then there's what we would call clubs, support centers, she says, identity-based or based on social categories or political interests. It's a terrible mistake to confuse all of these and imagine that the classroom or the public space of the campus is the same as your home, end quote. So it's a design metaphor that Wendy Brown is using here the campus as we might say a series of envelopes that's how architects describe a building or a room an envelope that en encloses some kind of activity and those envelopes on campus specialize in certain kinds of readiness and not in others so i'm thinking that for the disinterested de deliberation that good healthy work of deliberation in the classroom my students and i will have to agree that that space that envelope is not primarily a therapeutic space. And it's not primarily a political club with kind of inside speak and so on. So I'm, I'm betting and I'm designing my classes in a, such a way that I think students will come along for this venture. Thanks for listening. I know some of you enjoyed the audio in particular, and I'll be doing this in the future, doing these kind of twin posts, one uh, that's written uh, in the written kind of form, and then one that's a little bit less formal and in the form of audio. So enjoy. I'd love to hear from you either in comments or by email. Thanks.